BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Common Sense with Dr. Ben Carson. I'm your host, Ben Carson, and uh, we have a fascinating guest today. I'm pleased to be joined by a fellow doctor, fellow neurosurgeon, a friend, and an amazing person, Dr. Ricardo Comatar at the University of Miami. He's a professor of neurological surgery at the University of Miami School of Medicine, the director of the University of Miami Brain Tumor Initiative, the director of surgical neuro-oncology, the director of the University of Miami Neurosurgery Residency Program, and the Surgical Neuro-Oncology Fellowship Program. He directs everything. You can see that. (laughs) He's uh, internationally recognized, particularly in the field of brain tumors. He performs nearly, get this, 800 procedures for these conditions each year, making him one of the highest volume brain tumor surgeons in the world. He's also authored over 600 peer-reviewed scientific articles, book chapters, invited editorials. And somehow, with all that going on, he has his own podcast, The Crossover, with Dr. Rick Kolitar. <laughs> it's a pretty amazing but, uh, you know, Rick, we had a lot of medical students come through the neurosurgery program uh, at Hopkins, but very few of them made as much big of an impression as you did. So I'm not, uh, I'm not surprised by all the success that you've had. But uh, welcome and thanks for joining us on the program today. Oh, please. My pleasure. I just I want to say that it's amazing that um, if you had told me I was going to be talking with you in this setting 20 years ago, I would have thought. You were kidding. Just because I grew up with you as my idol, you're still a role model. Uh, you're someone who motivated me from day one. Uh, and to talk with you in this setting 20 years later, it's just been a dream. So I appreciate all your guidance and all your mentorship. And it's really a pleasure to be on this podcast. Well, thank you. We're going we're gonna to pick your brain a little bit. Let's do it. About some of the things that are going on in medicine these days. Uh, well, first question, of course, is, why medicine? Why neurosurgery? Why brain tumors? Uh, for me, there was nothing else that I wanted to do. I, I, I think my story is a little bit unique, although there are definitely neurosurgeons like me that decided very early on. I think neurosurgery is very unique in the sense that there's a large proportion of people that decide very early that they want to do it. For me, it was ninth grade. 
I was in life science class and the teacher was talking something about brain surgery. And I was in the back of the class. I wasn't paying attention. And I just heard brain surgery. And, you know, you're in ninth grade. You don't really know what that means. But the concept was so fascinating that I went up to my teacher and I remember specifically going up to her and I said, Mrs. Smith, I'm going to be a brain surgeon one day. And she was like, you can go run along now. That's great. It's time for, <laughs> it's time for, you know, PE or something. But from that day, I just, I was always pulled towards it. I was always gravitated towards the beauty, the complexity, the challenge, the art of it. Um, it just motivated me. And then when I got to medical school, most of my interest just by serendipity was vascular. I work with, you know, Dr. Tamargo, who was an amazing mentor as well. And my interest was vascular, but I hadn't really done the surgeries. I had just done the research and I thought the anatomy was interesting and the research was interesting. But then as a resident, you actually get to participate in the surgeries. And I very quickly realized that I loved the technical aspect of brain tumors. I loved the patients. I loved the challenge. I loved the research component, how little we know, how much we have to learn. So that was kind of my road was neurosurgery since ninth grade and then brain tumors. Once I got in the operating room, that's what I really gravitated towards. Hmm. That's fascinating. Now, you know, has medicine changed much since you started? You know, it's funny because I, I have both my parents are doctors and, and you always you hear people talk about medicine and oh the good old days. Medicine was better in the 80s and then the 90s and then the 2000s. And it's definitely changed. I would say that the amount of administrative work that I've had to do has skyrocketed. Now, I've taken on more leadership roles. So the administration, you know, the, that work is going to go up regardless when you move up the ladder. But in particular, it, there is definitely and we always joke around. It's they hire administrators to administrate the administrators who are administrating. And then it's just this routine. So I. I think that what I've seen as a change, the actual work we do has not. It's always going to be the best job in the world. Neurosurgery, I tell anyone, what you get to do and what I get to do, no better job in the world. Some people sit behind a desk and you and I get to operate on people's brains. And it's just such a privilege and a pleasure. So that will never change. The work surrounding surgery is becoming more and more onerous. And I think unless you really love it, you got to make sure that you really want to do medicine in general. And I think that's not, not necessarily a bad thing. And I tell people when they want to do medicine, I go, it's the best job in the world if you're picking it correctly. If you're going into exactly. it for the right reasons, there's nothing like it. So yeah, it definitely has changed. It's been more administrative, but it doesn't change that it's the best job in the world. Well, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges facing the medical profession these days? That's a good question. Um, I mean, financially, just keeping it viable. I think that the cost of the U.S. healthcare system is is the most in the world. It continues to skyrocket. Mm -hmm. And you wonder why it's so expensive, because doctors' salaries are going down in right. general. So what is making it so expensive? The insurance companies, the technology, um, is it the administrators? Um, where is this money going? And I think that what I'm seeing is that the average procedure, the average patient is 
is reimbursing less money for the hospital. So if the hospital is making less money, it's paying its doctors less money, it's paying its nurses less money, it's paying the techs, the administrator, everyone's getting paid less. So at some point, there's a breaking point. And I, I think that medicine is expensive, it always will be, but how do we limit the cost of our healthcare? That is the major problem with our healthcare system. On top of that, it's coverage, but that's a whole another issue in terms of healthcare coverage. Yeah. Um, well, I, th I think you hit the, the nail on the head because, you know, in America today, we spend $13,100 per patient, per capita a year. Amazing. And a lot of concierge practices don't cost that much money. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what do you need for good health care? You need a, a patient and a health care provider. Along came the middleman to facilitate the relationship, and now it has become the dominant entity controlling the other factors and sucking out all the money. Correct. So, Correct. Until, until we begin to actually address that situation, I think uh, it's a problem that's just going to continue to, to magnify. But, uh, you know, last year the Wall Street Journal editorial board uh, published Medical Education Goes Woke. And, uh, you know, that stimulated a lot of national discussion about social justice and medicine, medical education. Is there too much emphasis on DEI and maybe not enough emphasis on teaching medicine today? That's a tough one. Um, I would say that probably and let me let me just preface that by saying that I think diversity and inclusion is absolutely critical and we need to do a better job of that. And as program director of the residency here, that's a huge responsibility that I have. And I have not done a good enough job and I've, I've been much more cognizant of it. And I think that when you are in a leadership role, you have to take diversity and inclusion equity incredibly seriously. Uh, however, that cannot be your number one priority. It just physically cannot and it should not be. Um, it should be very important because I think any workplace, whether it's medicine or law or business or any type of uh, corporation needs to have those three, diversion, equity, um, and inclusion. But it, it shouldn't be your priority number one. I think getting the best people, teaching medicine, making sure you're producing the best doctors, that needs to be your priority number one. So do I think DEI is critical? Absolutely. Do I think that as a program director and someone in any leadership role, should that be on your mind at all times? Yes. Should it be number one? No. Number one is producing excellent doctors and addressing that issue first. Well, it's a very interesting uh, issue because, you know, I was I was looking at a football game yesterday and uh, the players were introducing themselves and where they came from. And, uh, you know, 90% of them were black. And I was saying, where's the DEI here? <laughs> uh, why, why is DEI important in one area and not in another area? I never and even thought about that. But that's, that's yeah. an amazing, amazing pickup. Yeah, it, make, it, it doesn't make sense. It makes no sense at all. But, uh, you know, the other thing that, that's happening is uh, universities like UPenn, have said that they're dropping the MCAT requirement for underrepresented minorities, which 
I personally find a little offensive Very. <laughs> because you're saying, you know, you can't really do well on this test. And therefore, we're just going to move this test out of the way. What a bunch of crap. I mean, wouldn't it be better if we concentrated on trying to make sure that people were prepared in such a way that they could do well on those tests? Because, you know, there have been a lot of studies that have shown that uh, low MCAT scores predict poor performance in medical school and a greater likelihood of dropping out. So rather than dealing with that, why don't we ask ourselves, why are the MCAT scores lower and what can we do to fix that situation? This is a general trend, not just in medical school, but in residency. I mean, I'm sure you know that step one is pass fail now. To me, that's crazy. And the problem is that, you know, and most medical schools are pass fail. The step one is pass fail. So how do you differentiate students that are applying in a competitive field like neurosurgery? It becomes very, very difficult when you don't have metrics. And when I talk to leadership, ACGME, RRC, and, and I ask, why are you making this pass fail? They think that they're benefiting the applicants. Oh, it's too much stress. Oh, we don't want their performance to be judged on one day. So my answer to that is, this is medicine. It's inherently stressful. So you're protecting them from stress. And if they can't handle one test, what are they going to do in medicine when every day you're dealing with patients' lives? So I think being able to handle stress is something that you need to judge early on, especially in this field. And then you think you're helping the applicants by not putting a step one or med school being pass-fail. What you're doing is you're hurting the students from small schools. So students from small schools, they can't compete with the Johns Hopkins, the Harvard, the Duke, what have you. They used to because they could do really well on step one and get noticed. Now they don't even have step one. So I think a lot of these rules were put in place to protect the students and they're actually hurting them. They're not allowing smaller schools to get recognized and they're not allowing students to be prepared for the stress of of life. Right. Now, this is a tough question, but do you need to be really smart to be a physician or just able to check boxes? I tell our residents this all the time. You need a baseline intelligence. You obviously can't be a moron and, and become a doctor. I think you need a baseline intelligence. But what is way more important than intelligence is discipline, honesty, organizational skills, if you want to call that checking boxes. Uh, I think that's that's way more critical. And so when I look at the people that I'm surrounded with here in neurosurgery and around the country, do I think we're the smartest group of people? Absolutely not. Do I think neurosurgeons need a baseline intelligence? Yes. But I think what you will see uniformly throughout neurosurgeons are people that are disciplined, that are willing to put in the work. And that's a real problem in this generation coming up. The youth want to be successful. They want to be a neurosurgeon. They want to be a doctor. They want to be a physician. But they're not necessarily ready to put the work in. And you got to put in the work. Nothing in life is free. And so that's way more important than intelligence is discipline and work ethic. Well, you know, they say that uh, what you have to learn in the first two years of medical school is equivalent to learning eight new foreign languages simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So obviously there's some real discipline that's Mm -hmm. needed there. And that's why if you know any medical students, they never have time for anything. (laughs) Yeah, I remember those years back at Hopkins. 
Absolutely. Those were were tough times. Well, you know, there there seem to be fewer people who really want to enter the medical profession. Uh, we're, we're, We're having a shortage of doctors and healthcare workers. And life expectancy is going up. Baby boomers are retiring. We have an aging population. It's a time when we need more medical professionals. What can we do to make medicine more enticing for people? That's an amazing question. And I agree with you. I think that the people that are being weeded out should not have necessarily gone into medicine to begin with. I feel like when I look at who's going into medicine now versus 10, 15, 20 years ago, the people that are going into it now really want to do medicine. They understand that it's not going to be cush. The money might be less. And so they're going into it for the right reasons. How do you entice people? You know, the issue is people are going into it and the money is going down and the money is only or it's going down less in specialties. And so the real problem is with primary care. You've got a good amount of specialists in this country, but you don't have enough primary care doctors. The problem with primary care is that people are going to college and medical school, taking out loans, and then they become a pediatrician and they're paid $90,000 a year. That's that's not really feasible. You've got $400,000 in loans and you're getting paid $90,000 a year and you've got a family. Very difficult. So somehow we have to be able to entice more primary care doctors, whether that's loan forgiveness, lowering the loans, getting rid of them completely, boosting up the salary. But, you know, boosting up salaries becomes controversial because then it's that because then it's the whole why not me and why pediatricians and why internists, but not pulmonologists or cardiologists or what have you. So really, where do you draw the line? That I don't know. But I would say you start with addressing the financial issues that keep many people from going into primary care. We'll be right back uh, in one minute. Stay with us. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. We have a purveyor of common sense with us today, Dr. Rick Comatard, professor of neurosurgery at the University of Miami, director of just about everything there. And, um, you know, Rick, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about when I was a third year medical student and uh, CAT scanners were just coming out. And uh, at the end of the day, when we were doing our neurosurgery rotation, 
that was the highlight of the day to go down and see the CAT scans. They were grainy. It looked like a Rorschach test, but it was so exciting. When you compare that with the, the 3D CT scans of today, it's completely different. But what are some of the, the technological advances that have been really exciting for you? The most exciting in the field of brain tumors currently, without a doubt, is connectomics. What connectomics are is understanding the pathways of the brain, not just the areas which are important. For decades, the brain has been eloquent, non-eloquent. And eloquent is language, motor, vision, and that's it. There's like three areas of the brain and everything else we think is just not important. And in neurosurgery, we operate, people go home, walking, talking, and we think that's okay. But what we're learning over time is that what was previously considered non-eloquent may in fact be eloquent. Uh, we just don't understand the connections of the brain to the right degree. What we're learning now is we're, we're starting to understand the different connectomics. If you operate in the right frontal lobe, which is in general considered to be non-eloquent, sometimes there are significant personality changes and you can get an SMA syndrome, which we all, you know, just explain that that's an area where you operate, you don't injure the motor area, but people for a day, a week, a month can't move a certain side of the body. Why is that? And so what we're understanding is that obviously the brain is way more complicated than we previously thought and the connections in many situations can be just as important as the area so connectomics is is growing we're starting to integrate that into our surgeries so again before brain tumor surgery very crude right frontal left frontal temporal lobe eloquent not eloquent now we're starting to understand the connections and the possible cognitive changes that certain surgeries can cause and potentially how do we teach that patient preoperatively so they're counseled on it? Or even better, how do we avoid that damage during the surgery? Those are two very big areas. Interesting. Now, you know, along the same line, um, you know, quantitative data from biomarkers and genomic testing and things are, are allowing us to really personalize medicine these days. And uh, you couple that with AI in medicine, to manage all that information. Is this something that's going to be good and helpful for us in medicine? There are a lot of people who seem to be afraid of the, the concept of AI. What, what's your thinking on this? So I, I think AI is just like everything else. It's going to have good parts to it and bad parts to it. I think that personalized medicine, targeted therapy, patient-specific care, that is the goal of especially cancer care, and I'm just going to focus on cancer as someone who treats brain tumors. You know, the reason why gliomas are so difficult to treat is we don't understand what makes each glioma different and we treat them all the same. So you have a small percentage who really respond and do well, and then a large percentage who don't respond and do poorly. So understanding what makes every single patient's brain tumor different, whether it's through AI or genomics and have targeted therapy, that's where we're going to have breakthroughs. So that's, that's excellent. Then you look at AI in other parts of medicine, and I see the end of many human physicians, meaning like, for example, radiology, right? Reading a chest x-ray, reading a CAT scan, that is all pattern recognition. And 
a human being can only do it so well. We all make errors. We all have human error. What the AI does is it essentially gets rid of human error and the ability to do pattern recognition, whether it's radiology, pathology, those fields are going to be AI dominated. And so if I was a resident in radiology or in pathology, I would definitely be worried because that's going to change your job and potentially, you know, make your job irrelevant. So there's good and bad, just like anything else. But for everything that uh, is eliminated, something new opens up. Correct. So are there any ethical considerations with AI? I mean, I think you're always going to have ethical considerations. And this is this is one of the big things about AI. I think at what point are you playing God, right? Like the technology advances and continues to advance. But at what point are you opening up Pandora's box and at what point is the computer smarter than you? And at what point is the computer making the decisions and not you? And then all of a sudden, are we the technician and the computer is making all the decisions? And so I think the ethical dilemma with AI is, and you referred to it earlier, embracing the technology, not running from it, because technology is never going to go away. Fighting AI is pointless. It's going to be here. It's going to become a bigger and bigger part of medicine and just in the world in general, but you need to embrace it, but you need to have regulations on its use. And the people that are using it need to understand the power of AI. Because if you, if someone from 20 years ago saw what we're doing now, they would think it's science fiction and now it's real. And you wonder what's going to happen 20 years from now. Is it just going to be mind blowing? And I'm sure it will be, but at what point are we pushing too far? And we're kind of opening up Pandora's box. That's a big ethical dilemma when it comes to AI. Now, you know, Rick, when I was uh, early in my career in neurosurgery, if you were diagnosed with a glioblastoma, you were pretty much dead in a year. That was a long time ago. Uh, Forty years later, you're diagnosed with a glioblastoma. You still don't have a whole lot of time. What's the future? I think the future is understanding the genomics and the personalized care. I think that when you look at the clinical trials that are going on now with glioblastoma, they are all patient-specific type therapies. And I think that's where the breakthrough is going to come. I would agree with you. I would say that our progress with glioblastoma is one of the more disappointing areas of cancer care. You look at melanoma and the changes in the last 20 years when it comes to like immunotherapy yeah. and lung cancer that was, it was, that was a death sentence. And now many people are cured of lung cancer and breast cancer and colon yeah. cancer. Medulloblastoma. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's only a matter of time before there are similar breakthroughs when it comes to brain cancer. But just like understanding targeted therapy with melanomas. We have to understand targeted therapy when it comes to glioblastoma. We just don't understand the pathophysiology yet to the right level. So I expect there to be major breakthroughs. I'm hoping it's a year or two, but it might be more because the science is so complex. And we will be back in one minute. Stay with us.
VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep, the application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs, just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. We'd be kind of a remiss if we didn't talk about the pandemic that we just went through and its effect on medicine. What are some of the things that the pandemic helped us to learn about our healthcare system? And specifically, uh, do you think some of the censorship of physicians that we saw during the pandemic under the label of misinformation, which turned out not to be misinformation, was uh, damaging to public health in general? I think what the pandemic emphasized and took to another level was the distrust, the public distrust. And I think it was happening even before the pandemic, but it just really accelerated it. If you look at public opinion of physicians and their recommendations and their diagnoses and their treatment plans, people would trust in their physicians and go with it or, or at least get a second opinion, maybe get a third opinion, but really understanding that a doctor went to medical school, they are a specialist, they did internship and residency and fellowship. And over the last 20 years, because I believe of social media, the internet, there's so much information out there that people have gained public or have gained distrust in the in the healthcare system. What the information that they're getting from doctors, they don't necessarily believe. And that's dangerous. And what the pandemic did was it took it from its normal trajectory of kind of more and more distrust and it just went exponential. And I think a lot of that was politically driven. You know, it was a pandemic, it was a virus, it was biology, it was science, and all of a sudden it became political, which is crazy if you think about it. So it got weaponized and there was no more science. People weren't listening to science. Instead of listening to a doctor who's an infectious disease specialist who, you know, spent his life studying viruses, people would listen to someone on TikTok who didn't graduate high school and was talking about the virus. That's crazy. And so I think we're in a situation now that is incredibly dangerous where people at baseline have a distrust for the healthcare system. They don't always believe that doctors have their best interest in mind, which is crazy. And it creates this circle of misinformation because people will start. I'm not going to trust my doctor. I'm going to look online at some terrible news source or some scientific source, and then they will propagate that misinformation. And that's how you have conspiracy theories and then those spiral out of control. So I think it's very dangerous when people don't trust the science. Science is evidence-based. Science is very difficult to argue. People's opinion shouldn't 
play a role in medicine. That's not evidence based. So I think it was very dangerous. And I think that we're still reeling from it. Yeah, unfortunately, it's going to take a long time to repair the damage that was done. And we need to uh, help people to recognize that what really works is if you have a good medical system, work with your doctor and your medical system, somebody who knows you, who knows your specific problems. Obviously, the risk of vaccines, for instance, are different in different groups and the necessity for them are different in different groups. In the pediatric age group, you know, the COVID vaccine is virtually unnecessary because the chances of a, of a child having a serious complication or death from COVID, 0.025%, that's approaching zero. You have no idea what the long-term implications are. But the good thing is that tells you something about American parents because only 13% of them had their kids vaccinated, even when they had all this pressure to get your kid vaccinated, which means that maybe the American people are a little smarter than we think they are. And <laughs> that's very encouraging to know that. But, um, you know, uh, I mentioned earlier ab about your podcast. I don't know how you have time to do that crossover with Dr. Rick Komatar, but uh, why did you start it? And, and what are some of the kind of topics that you've talked about? That's a great question. I, you know, I started the podcast out of, as crazy as it sounds, boredom during the pandemic. You know, the pandemic hit, all medical professionals kind of suffered in terms of overall workload volume. People weren't going to hospitals unless they were dying. Uh, and so I had a little bit more free time because I was only doing malignant cancerous brain tumors. People that had benign meningiomas or pituitary tumors, we weren't allowed to operate on elective benign tumors for several months unless they were symptomatic. So I had more free time and I started it on Instagram Live as just a way to talk to experts in the field and learn something for myself, just to kind of edify myself. So it started out with just interviewing people on topics that I found fascinating uh, with really no interest in making it to a podcast. I just wanted to learn more about different topics. And then it started to gain momentum. I, I interviewed people like yourself, which was amazing. And then it kind of just gained momentum. People were interested in these topics. People wanted me to publish the topics because the conversations were so were so in depth. And then it became a podcast and it's kind of taken on a life of its own. Now, I literally do it for no other reason than it's fun. And when people are like, why is it fun? Because every week for half an hour, I get to talk to a world renowned expert completely myself about whatever I want to talk about, whether it's politics, whether it's Navy SEALs, whether it's NFL athletes, it's a real privilege because you get to get inside the mind of people that fascinate me. And to me, understanding what makes people tick and why they are who they are. I mean, that's the best part of life, right? Because we're all so different. We all have different things that motivate us and got us to where we are. I want to learn about that because you can make yourself a better person by learning about other people. Absolutely. Well, as, as we come to a close, what would you say to a young person today who is considering a career in medicine? I would tell them that ignore the noise. You're going to get a lot of 
haters, I call them. When you tell them you want to do medicine, there's a lot of people out there that are going to badmouth medicine. It's not what it used to be. The money's not what it used to be. You don't control your own job. You're going to be pushing paper, all this other stuff. And some of that is true, but that's not what's important. What I would tell people is that if you want to do medicine and you want to do it for the right reasons that we discussed throughout this entire podcast, it's the greatest job on the planet earth period hands down there's nothing even remotely close there are days when i mean i i can't believe they actually pay me to do what i do i mean it's amazing it's so much fun and so what i would tell people is ignore the noise make sure you want to do it go shadow doctors spend time with doctors make sure you understand the field and if once you understand the field if it's for you go for it don't even think twice it's the greatest and, you know, one thing I would, I would add to that is when I was uh, in high school and I would tell people what I was going to do, and they would say, but you got to go to college for four years and medical school for four years and a year of internship and years of residency. You'll be an old man by the time you finish. Funny thing is, when I finished, they were the same age as I was. So. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is exactly right. And you never... Pick a career that you're going to be doing for 40 or 45 or 50 years because it's one or two or three years longer, right? It's like, yeah, law school is three years, med school is four years, and then plus training. So you're not going to do medicine, which you're going to be practicing till you're 65, 70, 75, who knows, because of a couple years, just do what you love and the rest will, will, will figure itself out. Well, I want to leave on a very high note, Rick. Uh, Tell us about an interesting case that you've done recently. Um, I would say the most interesting or the most satisfying cases, and I'll just I'll just leave it general because I I, got to think about what is a, a super interesting case. But when you have people that have a neurological deficit, whether they can't see because they have a large pituitary tumor pushing on their chiasm or they can't talk because they have a tumor in their language area, or they can't walk because they have a tumor in their area of the brain, which controls movement. And you're able to remove that tumor and restore neurological function. That's the best. And that, and that also never gets old. It never gets old. You know, when you're able to help someone to that extent, um, it's always interesting and it, and it's always fascinating. And I, I also bring up the point, you know, I remember when I was, in medical school at Hopkins. And one of the first brain surgeries I saw was one of your cases. And you pointed out the brain. It was my first time seeing the brain. And I remember just the awe that I had watching you operate on the brain because I couldn't believe that that was someone's brain. And I still, 20 years later and almost 10,000 surgeries later, I'm in awe. I see the brain and I'm like, that never gets old. That never doesn't get interesting. So it's amazing what we do. It really is. I would agree with you. And, you know, I remember also about you, you always had a lot of questions. <laughs> I hope I wasn't too annoying. <laughs> but they were very good questions. And those are the questions that have driven the incredible success you've had. And I just want to thank you for spending the time with us and for what you do for our society. Thanks for being with us today. Well, thanks for having me. And we'll be right back in one minute with closing thoughts on today's program. 
I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. I hope you enjoyed that uh, conversation with Dr. Rick Komatar, University of Miami. Just an amazing surgeon, an incredible individual. And uh, it's been wonderful for me uh, watching his career from the time when he was a medical student to time now where he is an internationally renowned professor of neurosurgery. But, you know, we discuss a lot of issues in medicine. Medicine is a fascinating field and something that we all need to be concerned about is our health. What do you have that's more important in your health? Put that into perspective. If you could have a billion dollars, but you had to be a quadriplegic, or you could be penniless, but would be perfectly healthy, which would you take? I don't think that's a tough choice for anybody. So think about what we can do to improve our own health and health in our society in general. And that's going to be it for this week. Make sure you get your podcast, Apple Podcasts, free of charge, Stitcher, Spotify. Rate us, review us, tell others about us. And let's all get involved in spreading common sense. And remember the cornerstones, faith, liberty, community, and life. See you next week.